This morning's sermon text is Micah 5, 1 through 6. Now muster yourselves in troops, daughter of troops. They have laid siege against us. With a rod they will smite the judge of Israel on the cheek. But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Therefore he will give them up until the time when she who is in labor has borne a child. Then the remainder of his brethren will return to the sons of Israel. And he will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will remain, because at that time he will be great to the ends of the earth. And this one will be our peace. When the Assyrian invades our land, when he tramples on our citadels, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight leaders of men. And they will shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword, the land of Nimrod at its entrances. And he will deliver us from the Assyrian when he attacks our land and when he tramples our territory. Let's pray. Words fail, Lord, when we think of the wonder of Christ going forth from of old, from ancient days, before the prophet and before his birth. His origin was from of old. Words fail to express the beauty, wonder, and mystery of God clothed in human flesh, lying in a manger, born in a little town, Bethlehem, growing up, never sinning, choosing sovereignly to lay his life down for those who hate him, rebel against him, praying from the cross, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. We knew what we were doing. Too well. To this day, we know what we're doing when we disobey the Lord and prefer other things to Him. So, God, I pray that you would grant me some words to help make Christ what He is glorious, beautiful, precious, treasured at this time of year. It's come. And help us understand the beauty of this text. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to take a little detour here from Romans 11. And it's only a little one. Because when you go to Micah chapter 5, you do not go far from Romans 11. You remember what the main point of Romans 11 is? It begins, has God rejected his people, Israel? And Paul's answer is no, and he develops the whole chapter explaining how it is that God has not rejected Israel, but he has a future for Israel. And right here, look at verse 3. Therefore, he, God, shall give them up. That's Israel under God's judgment. He'll give them up until the time... When she who is in labor 
has given birth, referring to the time of the Messiah and his coming, then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. That's not far from Romans 11. Then when? Prophets are always doing this to us, right? You just want to pull your hair out when you read the prophets because you don't know when they're talking about. This or then or is it, is it five years out or 500 years out or 5,000 years out? And the answer is usually yes. It's all mushed together and some of it's being fulfilled in the Assyrians and some of it was fulfilled when Jesus came the first time and some of it will be fulfilled when Jesus comes the second time. And they had this prophetic perspective, like I said last week, about these mountain ranges. And he says, then. Actually, the, the then is not even in the Hebrew. It's just the rest of them are going to come. So somehow, with the coming of this ruler born in Bethlehem, somehow connected to him, however long afterwards, he doesn't tell us, the rest of his brothers are coming back. And so I say it's not a far detour from Romans 11, where it teaches that Israel is far from the Lord by and large, and a hardening has come upon Israel, but the day is coming when they will, they will return. Let me read you a quote by Leslie Allen, who wrote a commentary in the the uh, New International Commentary, Old Testament. He said, Paul is heir to Micah in Romans 11, where in, in a similar vein, he views a mainly Gentile church as a lopsided thing and looks forward to the time when Jewish believers would be added in appropriately large numbers, close quote. So in his commentary on Micah, he draws the connection with Romans 11. However, I'm not going to focus on the distinctive teaching of Romans 11 tonight, namely the salvation of all Israel someday. I want us to be amazed tonight, not that Israel will be saved, but that I am saved. And you are saved. That's what I want you to be amazed at tonight. I want you to see the Savior afresh in these few verses here in Micah. So let's get first clear the connection between this passage and Jesus. To do that, I'm going to read for you Matthew 2, verses 1 to 6. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men came from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who is to be born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests, now notice who's rendering this judgment, that I'm about to read. Assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Christ, the Christ, the Messiah, is to be born. This ruler, this king. Verse 5. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And then he quotes our text. In fact, 
um, they misquote it partly. I'll come back to that later. You, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So at least we know this. In Jesus' day, the scribes and the Pharisees knew Micah 5 refers to the coming Messiah. And under God's providence, a star had appeared, drawn some people from the east. And the interpretation is given. The baby, that star is signaling, that's Micah 5, baby. So there's the link for us. There's one other place in the New Testament where it's referred to, John 7, 42. This time it's not the scribes, it's the people in general. And they say this, puzzling about who Jesus is and John the Baptist. Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So they're quoting Micah 5 and they're puzzled because they don't know Jesus is from Bethlehem. They think he's from Nazareth. So, there's this popular understanding that the child to come was going to be a Messiah and king for Israel. But Micah, if you listen carefully, is saying, oh, how much more than a king in Israel. Verse 4, Micah 5, verse 4, near the end of the verse. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. In other words, this is not a tribal deity. This is not a little Palestinian god. This is not a Jewish idol. He shall be great to the ends of the earth. We've heard it in more than one prayer and song tonight. King of kings and Lord of lords. Don't let that familiarity take away the point of that phrase. King of kings. Meaning, he's the king, and all these other kings, he's the king of those kings. You got that? He's the king over Gaddafi and Bush. He's the king over all the kings on the earth and over all the lords, both demonic and human. So, what I want to do is simply... Focus on these few verses and find at least maybe three things about this Messiah that will encourage our hearts and cause us to worship him this Christmas. Number one, notice the contrast between the insignificance of Bethlehem, his origin, his human origin, and the significance of of the one born. Notice the contrast. Let's read verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah. Now that word Ephrathah, by the way, is um, comes from Genesis 48, 7. And it says uh, that Rachel was weeping. And it's Ephrathah, parenthesis, that is Bethlehem. It's just another ancient name for the town of Bethlehem. It means in Hebrew, fruitful. Which is interesting because Bethlehem, Bethlehem means house of bread. And Ephrathah means fruitful. This is a very 
This is a very rich place as far as food and nourishment growing up here. Probably not an accident that God would ordain that to be the name of the town where his son is born. House of bread and fruitful. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, nevertheless, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose origin is from of old, from ancient days. So the, the point here is Bethlehem is scarcely worth mentioning. Scarcely worth counting among the clans of Judah. There were some great cities and there were some great tribes. Here's the question. Why does God do it this way? He's always doing it this way, right? He's always using David to slay Goliath. He's always using the last unlikely son. He's always choosing some weak vessel. Why does he do it this way? One answer, I want to make sure that you don't think I'll miss it, might be, well, it's David's city. I mean, the first David was from Bethlehem. That's why we call it the city of David. And so, of course, the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. It's the city of David. That's true. And it totally misses the point of verse 2. The point of verse 2 is not, this city has been bestowed dignity because the first David was born there. Therefore, we expect a great king to be born there. That is exactly the opposite of the point. Right? The point is, Bethlehem, too little to be counted among the clans. The point of the verse is to draw attention to the unlikeliness of being born in Bethlehem. Not the likeliness of being born in Bethlehem. If you don't see that, you miss the whole point. The point is, it's not likely to be born here. It's not likely for the King of Kings and Lord of Lords to be born in Bethlehem. Rome, maybe. Babylon, maybe. Alexandria, maybe. Not Dalbo, Minnesota. No offense to Dalbo. The point is, God is always acting this way for a reason, namely, so that we can't boast. So that the Bethlehem people won't say, well, of course he was born in Bethlehem. Look at us. We're the glory city. God is free. That's the point. He's not impressed with any human achievements, ever. God is never constrained by our worth, our merit, our dignity, our accomplishments. He does everything he does freely for his own wise purposes, never constrained by any human greatness to be in our debt, ever. God is free. Listen to the way Paul puts it. You're familiar with 1 Corinthians 1.27. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. 
God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Why? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. That's the point of Micah 5. That's the point of 1 Corinthians 1. That's the point of Romans 11. And that's the point of the Bible. God is doing a thing in every generation in a way that will get him glory and shut our mouths as we begin to take credit or boast about anything in us. God is always angling to shut our proud mouths so that we will find our joy in him and not in our accomplishments. Because that's stable. This is not. This can be burned up. God chose a stable so that no innkeeper could boast. He chose my comfortable inn. God chose a manger, a food trough for cattle, so that no carpenter would say, he chose my bed. God chose Bethlehem so that no one would say, of course, it's a great city. Why wouldn't he want to come and grace our great city? He chose it freely, just like he chose you freely and me freely. The deepest meaning of the littleness and insignificance of Bethlehem is that God does not bestow the blessings of the Messiah on anyone because of merit. That's the deepest meaning. This is a gospel message here. This is a message telling us, don't think that who you are or what you've done or what your background is, is going to make you right with God. You will not receive messianic blessings of salvation and forgiveness and justification and hope and eternal life because of who you are and what you've done. I don't care how squeaky clean your life has been or how filthy dirty your life has been. It's irrelevant. Which is really goodness because nobody in this room is squeaky clean. It's really good news that it was born, he was born in Bethlehem, which means maybe he could be born in me. Maybe. That's the gospel message of verse 2. Second observation. Notice that Christ, the Messiah, in this text, secures the promises of God for his people. He's the yes to all God's promises. So that if you trust him, you get the promises. Now, where am I getting this? Any Jew in those days who heard these words would think immediately of two people, as verse 2, 3, and 4 are read. They think of two people. One, they think of David, the first David. And two, they think of the Messiah, the son of David, to be born someday. They think of those two people. 
There are links with the first David here. And the point is this. This prophecy shows that hundreds of years after David, God is very jealous to preserve and to confirm the promise made to David. So even before the future comes, when the son of David is to be born, you get this intervening prophetic reassurance. What he made to David, I now reassert as coming true in the city of David. Here are the, the links. Number one, David was from Bethlehem. That was his hometown. Number two, David was a ruler in Israel. He was the epitome of rulers in Israel, a man after God's own heart. And number three, David was a shepherd. All three of those are mentioned here. This child is coming from Bethlehem. This ruler is coming from Bethlehem. He's a ruler, and he's going to shepherd his people. Everybody would think, oh, it's David. It's David, of course. This is the one who's to be the line of David. And then they would think, oh, I remember the promise of 1 Samuel chapter 7, which goes like this. I will raise up your offspring. This is God speaking to David 300 years earlier. I will raise up for you, for you offspring after you who shall come forth from your body. I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And your house, David, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, that was spoken, 1 Samuel 7, 300 years before Micah. Now, God inspires Micah and says... There's a ruler coming, and he's coming from Bethlehem, and he's going to shepherd my flock. And everybody thinks, oh, yes, of course. That was promised earlier, but it's 700 years till it happens. So this is an intervening yes to the promise of God. Yes to the promise of God. Assured along the way to the people of Israel, God keeps his promises. And what amazes me is the timing of this yes. Micah is a contemporary with Isaiah. These two prophets, Isaiah and Micah, prophesied in the 8th century. You know what happened in 722, near the end of the 8th century. Samaria, the capital of the northern kingdom with all of its ten tribes was obliterated by Assyria. Micah was alive when that happened. Isaiah was alive when that happened. They were prophesying not at a time of resurgence and restoration, and yes, there's going to be a Messiah because we can see evidences of it. He was prophesying at a time when ten-twelfths of the people had been wiped out. And the capital of the northern kingdom, which was the main kingdom, was gone. And Assyria was pounding on the doors of Hezekiah at Jerusalem. And for all anybody knew, it was over for the southern kingdom too, except for God. And in that context, he says, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, 
Too little to be among the tribes. From you shall come forth a ruler from me. His origin is from of old, from ancient days. And he will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord his God. And in the name of the majesty of the Lord. And he will be great through Assyria to the ends of the earth. That takes a lot of guts to talk like that when Assyrians have Jerusalem surrounded and the northern kingdom has fallen. But that's the way God is. He comes to you at your darkest hour and says, Don't forget, I made a promise to David. I'm going to fulfill it. Hang on to me in the darkest hour. Listen to the way Paul put it in Romans 15, 8. Christ became a servant to the circumcised. That is, he became a Jew serving Jews. He became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promise given to the patriarchs and to David. 2 Corinthians 1.20 all the promises of God find their yes in him. Now, the application of that for us is that if you trust the Messiah, Jesus, all the promises of God are yes for you in him. This is staggering. And if you say, well, weren't, weren't some of them made to Jews? You know, weren't some of them made to Jews? I say, yeah, most of them were made to Jews. Virtually all of them were made to Jews. You've been listening in chapter 11. You are a wild olive branch, you Gentiles. And a wild olive branch has now by faith in the Messiah been grafted into the tree with its roots in the patriarch. And the sap, call it the blood of Jesus, pulsing with messianic assurance. You've been grafted in and you have everything in that tree. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, barbarian or Scythian, male or female, but we are all one in Christ who is now the trunk of that tree. So yes, they were made to Jews and you are one. Read every line of the Old Testament full of promise for your own soul. The land? Yeah. It's yours. But I'm getting beyond my sermon here. Back to Romans 11, which I don't want to do. I want to close with one third point. Let me sum up one and two before I give you the third one. Christmas means the nullification of human boasting and the confirmation of divine promises. That help you remember the first two points. Christmas, the coming of the Messiah, means the nullification of all boasting in my city and my family and my achievements and whatever else you might be tempted to boast in. You just shut your mouth and enjoy the grace of of God. And Christmas means the confirmation of the promises of God made to David, Abraham, Isaac, uh, Micah, 
and all the ones because Christ is the yes to all God's promises. Now, finally, number three. Micah shows us that the Christ will protect his people and give them peace. He's going to protect us, his people, and give them peace. Verse 4 and a little bit of verse 5. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Now let's look at what he offers here. One, he will stand. I think there's significance in that simple word. He's not going to be lying down on his messianic job. He's not going to be waiting for us to take initiatives. He's going to be standing. He's going to be working on his toes, alert, exercising his power on behalf of those who trust him. Second, notice the word, he's going to shepherd his flock. He won't leave you without food. He won't let you go wandering off into some desert place where there's no nourishing food. He will hold you, he'll reach out his rod if he has to, and whack you on the side of the head in order to get you back to the still waters and the green pasture. He will shepherd you. There will be no need that you have. I really believe Psalm 8411. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Oh yes, plenty of hard things come into our lives. I really believe Philippians 419, my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Not everything you think you need, but everything you need. Count on it. You have a shepherd who's not going to drop his crook. He's not going to go to sleep on you. He's not going to say, oh, a wolf, I will run away because he's a hireling. Love the shepherd reality of your Savior. Third thing here, notice, in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, he will serve us. His good intentions for us will never be frustrated by lack of power to bring them to pass. I have all kinds of good intentions for lots of people that I cannot make happen because obstacles get in my way and I can't get there in time and I miss the funeral or all kinds of things keep me from doing many of the good things that I design. That never happens to Jesus. He rules in the strength and the majesty of the Lord. If Jesus doesn't get somewhere on time, he planned not to get there on time. Who could stop him if he meant to get there? This is a great encouragement to trust him when it looks like he delays. And he often seems to delay. Many texts deal with the delays of God, which in his mind are not delays. 
The biggest one, of course, is the second coming, right? And Second Peter tackles it head on and says, His promise is not slow, as some count slowness, but with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. Would you think he delayed if it had been two days since he left? Well, it has been two days since he left. And then notice, he shall be great to the ends of the earth. Our security in Christ will not be threatened by any opponent, any surprise marauding band from a distance. The greatness of Christ will extend over the whole earth and there will be no alien forces that will take us off guard. Every knee will bow, every tongue confess him as Lord eventually, either willingly or unwillingly, and the whole earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. And lastly, he will be our peace. Now, I know that in this context of Micah, it includes political peace. I know that, and I'm thankful for it. One of the reasons I know it is because he's already spoken of it like this, chapter 4, verse 3. He shall judge between many peoples and shall decide for strong nations afar off. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. That's coming. That's coming. No more Iraqs. No more Afghanistans. No more threatening Libyas. No more saber rattling anywhere in the world because the sabers will all be plows. <laughs> what a great day. The Lord will come someday. And he will banish unrighteousness and injustice and ungodliness and all his people. He will welcome into the new heaven and the new earth and there will be peace. I know that's here, but that's not where I want to end this sermon. Because you know what? That is not the deepest and most important peace. And it's not the only one in this book either. The deepest and most important peace, the one we need more than any other at Christmas time, is peace between us and God. Billy Graham nailed it with the book title, didn't he? Peace with God. That's the gospel. What you want more than anything this Christmas is to lay your head down at night and wake up in the morning with an absolutely clear conscience. Not the slightest fear that you're going to be judged for something you said or did or failed to do. That's what you want most. You know it in the times when you feel the guiltiest and feel the most close towards suicidal or feel the most fearful that you've wrecked somebody's life or, 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 or. You know what you want is, oh God, can I ever be right 
with you. And can you be right with me? Can you look with favor on this? And we know that's the peace. And there never will be the other kind until we have that kind. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. He's going to make all the nations prove his love. But where do I see in this book this other piece? If you want to look at it with me, it's the last few verses in the book. They're probably the most beautiful. We sang last week that song nobody knew. Great God of wonders, all thy ways are matchless, godlike and divine. But how much more godlike is your glory and your grace. Well, that's, this, this comes from this verse. That hymn comes from this verse. Verse 18 of chapter 7. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity? And passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. And you're in that. By faith in Jesus, you're in that remnant. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. Don't think that God's favorite thing is wrath. He's just, he's holy, and he will do wrath. Where his wisdom dictates, he must do wrath. That's not his favorite. It's not any parent's favorite, but good parents do it. He delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will, here's this, here's the, that sounds sweet, tender, warm. I like that. But I also like this. He will tread our iniquities under foot. You will cast our sins into the depths of the sea. You see what he's doing here? He's picturing our sins as our worst enemy. And they are. It isn't the Assyrians. Goodness gracious. All they can do is take our lives. Our sins can take our soul and send us to everlasting judgment. So our big, horrible, ugly enemy is sin. And so he uses language here. I'm trampling them. I will tread them down and I will throw them into the depths of the sea. That's the Christmas present I want. I want a sweet daily assurance. My greatest enemy, which is my own sin, has been pardoned. From the beginning of my life to the end. And the only reason the last verses of the book can come true for sinners is because of chapter 5, verse 2. There will be born a ruler. He doesn't tell the whole story. Isaiah tells most of the story. Our chastisement will be upon him. 
our sins, our iniquities. All of us like sheep have gone astray. And the Lord laid on him, our shepherd, the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so these sweet verses at the end of the book will come true because we have now seen in Jesus, chapter 5, come true. The greatest present you can give yourself or your family this year is to trust Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and for the hope of eternal life. So let me sum it up. His glory is supreme and our boasting is silenced. He shows it by choosing unlikely cities, unlikely pastors, unlikely saints to be his own. Second, his promises are sure. He reaffirms this 300-year-old promise. There is coming one to fulfill that Davidic line, and he will be a ruler in Israel in Bethlehem someday. We know him to be Jesus. And third, his protection and his peace are precious, especially peace with God. And now the peace of the Lord be with you, between you and God, and the promises which are sure be on you and in you, strengthening you and freeing you and helping you. And may all of our boasting at Christmas be boasting in the Lord. And all the people said, Amen.